Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we hear from Brad Feld. In the world of venture capital investing, Brad is a legend in the making. He's a partner in the Founder Group, co-leads the Anchor Point Foundation with his wife, Amy, and is a co-founder of Techstars, one of the world's most prolific global tech accelerators. He's also an author of a number of books, including Venture Deals, a book that we speak to in depth in this episode. For anyone considering venture financing, this is the de facto go-to guide of how to be smarter than your lawyer and a venture capitalist. And that's not just me exaggerating, that's actually the subtitle of the book. Now, Brad and I had a wide-ranging conversation from art collection and anxiety and depression over to his stories about the deals he's done and the lessons he's taken from them. He shared a story about an early investment he made into a company you'll likely all know. It was Fitbit. That company went on to the New York Stock Exchange with a $358 million IPO. But what was the story behind the early money in? Brad was kind enough to share that with us. Enjoy this episode. On the line, I have Brad Feld, who is a longtime venture investor. He's a consummate writer. You put that you're in version 54 of yourself, an art collector, an avid writer. I mean, the list goes on. Brad, I'm very happy to have you on. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I've got a list of questions. I really want to discuss the recent edition of Venture Deals because it's such a pivotal book when it comes to financing companies. But I thought it'd be a great place to start to hear from you on who you are and what brought you to the book and your other books and yeah, really get some background on yourself. Sure. The very short version is I'm a partner at a venture capital firm in Boulder, Colorado called Foundry Group. We invest all around the U.S. and Canada in early stage companies. We also invest in other early stage venture funds. We have about 30 funds we refer to as partner funds. They tend to be sub $100 million early stage VC tech funds. I'm also a co-founder of Techstars, which is the worldwide network that helps entrepreneurs succeed. Techstars now has accelerator programs that it runs in about 50 locations around the world. They fund about 500 companies a year through those accelerators. And then they've got a number of other products, including, for example, an ecosystem development product that they work typically with public-private partnerships to help build out and develop both startup communities and entrepreneurial ecosystems. I've been investing since the 1994 timeframe. Prior to that, I ran a company that I started in 1987 and sold it to a public company in 1993. I live with my wife, Amy Batchelor, in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Amy's Runs our foundation and is also on the board of a handful of significant nonprofits, including the Nature Conservancy and Wellesley College. And I've written a bunch of books, got two dogs, love to run, read a lot. And my most enjoyable time is time that I spend with Amy. That's awesome. You've got to be incredibly busy. So I appreciate you making the time here. And 
you know, one thing I can see or actually what I read and I find very interesting is that you're now with Amy helping apply a lot of the principles of the venture world, which I think that community or that world has so much to teach other areas, but you're now applying those to nonprofits or helping nonprofits adopt some of the perhaps best practices of the venture world. Now, we've been fortunate in our lives financially, you know, haven't been very successful. Because we don't have kids, we channel much of our excess money towards philanthropic endeavors. Both of us really love to help seed fund new philanthropic activities, whether it's a project-based or new foundations or new nonprofits. We have a handful of different areas that we apply this to. And what we found is that a lot of the entrepreneurial activity and a lot of the seed funding concepts and startup concepts with for-profits, with entrepreneurial companies, can be applied really in interesting ways to nonprofits, especially when there's a moment in time where something really needs to happen and there needs to be some focus on a particular type of activity. So we've done a fair amount of that, um, but we don't limit ourselves to that. I think our, our philanthropic activity ranges pretty widely. I find that interesting. As I said, I think it's really a, an excellent match there. Now, something I, I want to digress on and I just thought was interesting, and perhaps you could shed some light on it for myself and for the listeners, is you're also an art collector. What does that mean to you? Is this a, an asset class you're building wealth with, or is this a, a deeper appreciation for art? Much more deeper appreciation than art than anything to do with rational or intelligent investing. My mom's an artist, so I grew up the son of an artist. Both Amy and I like art a lot. And interestingly, we've been together for almost 30 years. When we started dating, you know, we're both nerds, so we spent a lot of time going to art galleries and things like that. Not really being of the art scene, but just visually liking what we saw. And we started buying art early in our relationship, small pieces, inexpensive pieces. And it turned out that about 80% of our art tastes overlap. So there's definitely divergence where there are things that one or the other of us doesn't like. A lot that we see, we either both like or don't, both don't like. So we, we learned how to collect together. We have gone deep on a number of artists. So when we find an artist we like, we tend to buy a piece a year from that artist over time. And for some artists, we've ended up with you know, 20, 30 pieces from a particular artist. And more recently, we've tried to buy and learn how to buy sculpture. And that's been very interesting because it's almost the inverse. Hmm. Only about 20% of what we see is an overlap yes or an overlap no for us. So sculpture has been much harder for us to figure out what we like and then to buy things together and to figure out rules around how to buy stuff when one person likes it and the other doesn't. But we've navigated some of that. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of going through a similar space with my wife in the sense we're looking at art. And there's a bit of a negotiation there because there's about an 80-20 split of who likes what and who doesn't. And you know, trying to find that middle ground. It's been a fun thing for us to do together. And we share our art very openly. We have a lot of companies around town that has our, some of our art on their walls. And, you know, a couple of the organizations that we support, like Nature Conservancy, has a huge Boulder location. And we've got a bunch of our collection there. So we've tried to show our art rather than have our art stacked up in a warehouse somewhere. Oh, that's cool. Now, I really want to talk about venture deals and perhaps some of your other books. But before we dive in there, there's a question that I wanted to ask from digging through some of your past posts and the blogging you've done. You mentioned meditation practice and getting rid of the reactional meditation and bringing in more of a regular routine. But that is a counter to the anxiety and depression perhaps you've experienced. And 
Can you speak about that? Because I think it's something that, I mean, everybody needs to talk about more. And, and I know how prevalent it is in the startup community. Yeah, I've personally struggled with anxiety and depression most of my adult life. It's been somewhat episodic. So usually triggered by something, you know, that, that throws me into an extreme state of anxiety. The depressions have often followed meaningful changes of some sort or just physiological exhaustion from whatever I was doing. And as I've gotten older, I've worked hard at a number of different things to not eliminate the emotional cycles that I go through, but learn how to essentially modulate them and have them be a less intrusive part of my existence. I turn out to be a very functional depressive, so I can be very effective through work while I'm depressed, but there's just no joy in anything I'm doing. And the absence of joy can be a very profoundly unhappy thing. I found meditation, a consistent meditation, a real practice, a real daily practice over a long period of time to be very helpful for me. I've gone through phases where, you know, in moments where I'm really anxious, you know, I'll meditate and sort of started for a week or a couple of weeks or a month and then things pass and whatever the emotional strain that I'm feeling sort of lifts and then I stop meditating. I found that to be much less useful than the day in, day out, building it in consistently to the way I live my life. Mm. Uh, it's reflective of another thing that I've been doing for a very long time. I, I'm an avid runner. I love to run. I love to run long distance. And I, I love to run alone. I don't like to run with other people. I live in Colorado, so I spend a lot of time running on trails and in the mountains. I usually don't listen to anything when I run. Sometimes I'll listen to a book on tape, you know, an audible for a cycle of runs. But usually I just sort of allow it to be a quasi-meditative activity, although I've learned that meditation versus running are very, very different things and they have different effects on me. But I put them all in the bucket of a combination of self-care as the label of things but understanding how to customize or personalize self-care for one's, one's own being rather than emulate others. I think a mistake a lot of people make, I certainly have made it in contemporary society, is this endless quest to find a thing that works. Oh, well, that works for that person. I must do that. You know, mm. the, eight, the eight habits that blah, or whatever the latest listicle on the web is that says, you know, how to be a happy whatever while you're under immense stress. And what I've discovered is that there's often lots of things to try, and whether they're tactics or hints or whatever, trying them is interesting. And then when you find something that works, or when I found something that works, incorporating that into my life on an everyday basis has become really useful and really powerful. I'm 54, so I use the word journey a lot to describe how life unfolds and Probably lots of people like it and lots of people find it annoying that I'm constantly talking about whatever journey we're on. But I, I do view it as a continuum. And for me, putting effort into exploring that, understanding that, understanding myself, learning what helps, figuring out what doesn't, and either doing less of what doesn't or not doing what doesn't and doing more of what helps to make my journey on this planet more satisfying, more rewarding is is all part of it. And uh, daily practice of meditation has become a, a very important part of that. I appreciate you saying that and speaking to it because I think it's something that, well, let's face it, I mean, it's a mental illness that we can 
work on and you have to work on yourself. But you know, the more people who speak about it and share their experiences with it, I think comes out of the shadows and and gives people the uh, the ability to start searching for those tools. So I appreciate you speaking to that. Thanks. Having touched on that, I mean the the whole purpose of the podcast is to dive into really what it takes to finance a company properly. And uh, you know, I've seen nightmares happen when companies go to finance and maybe they do out of sheer ignorance or haste and they mark up the wrong terms. And before you know it, they've pretty much killed their company, but they're not going to know that for a number of years to come. You know, there's so many things that can happen. And you've written a book that is perhaps the Bible or, or the text of properly financing venture deals. And when I say that, I'm, I'm saying private venture capital, which you really speak to. But I want to dive in there. I've got a series of questions. You've recently released the fourth edition of Venture Deals. Can you share a bit of background about the book and, and what compelled you to write it? I wrote Venture Deals, uh, the first edition with uh, Jason Mendelson, one of my partners at Foundry Group, in 2011. It came out of a series of blog posts that he and I had written that we published on my blog at felt.com in 2004 and 2005. And if you wind back or time travel back to 2004, venture capital was really in the doghouse. It was post-internet collapse, post-telecom collapse. There were you know, regular articles about how Silicon Valley was dead. And there just wasn't much interest or, or appetite, generally speaking, in venture capital. And I would say broadly in entrepreneurship and in the importance of entrepreneurship. Uh, so that was the time frame that we wrote those blog posts against. And we started Foundry Group in 2007. Of course, in 2008, uh, global financial crisis occurred. So I think most of business and society was distracted for a couple of years by that. And by 2010, there was starting to be this emergent notion of the importance of entrepreneurship. And many companies that were started in the 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8 timeframe were becoming large, successful companies, including you know, a number of household tech company names like Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. And the phenomenon on the internet called Web 2.0, which really started in 2007, was in full bloom and venture capital was becoming popular again, starting to be talked about globally this time around. And we we're motivated to write the book initially for the same reason we wrote those blog posts was that there was just an enormous amount of opacity around how venture deals worked. And the opacity was with entrepreneurs, many of whom had a huge information advantage or negotiation advantage with the venture investors that they were dealing with, but also with many venture investors, either new ones to the industry or ones that had been around for a while, but they had never really, for whatever reason, dug into and understood many of the issues that come up in these kinds of deals. You also had you know, this global expansion of interest in investing in venture capital. So worldwide, and certainly throughout the United States, you had a lot of people who didn't have much experience with it, whether they were angel investors or entrepreneurs becoming interested. And then, of course, all of the service providers around the system, whether it's lawyers or accountants or anyone that's helping with startup creation had the same problem. And so as an entrepreneur, it was very, very hard to lock in on sort of how to think about it and what actually mattered. 
And if you had a great lawyer, awesome. But if you didn't have a great lawyer, you could get into some real tangles. Or even if you had a, a really good lawyer as an entrepreneur, if you didn't know which things to focus on and how to think about it in general, you'd often get into lots of simple traps as you were negotiating the deal. So that's what motivated us to write the book. And it came out around 2011. With the book, you've now done four editions. That's indicative of the industry of venture capital changing. If you were to look forward and, and perhaps write the seventh or tenth edition of this, what would be different? Where do you see the, the world of venture capital going and how should entrepreneurs be viewing that? I have no clue. I've never been a particularly good predictor. And I've consciously tried not to predict trends. I know lots of people especially on the venture side that spend a lot of time predicting. You know, a lot of people in finance that predict, some entrepreneurs predict. Personally, what I've found is that our capacity to understand what's going to happen in 20 years is almost zero. And some of that I've gotten from looking back and, you know, looking back in 10 or 20 year timeframes, right? It's 2020. If, if you're able to go back with knowledge of what's happened between 2010 and 2020 and look at what the predictions from 2010 would have been, there's almost no correlation with predictions I think that people would have made in 2010 with what's going on right now. So it's an interesting question for many, and there's lots of people that I'm sure are comfortable prognosticating about it. I would actually change, not the question, but the, the way I answer the question, which is fundamentally, I think that we are on a curve of incredible innovation around technology we understand as well as many technologies that we don't understand. And the intersection of those technologies and the impact of those technologies on each other are generating and will generate enormous change in the way we function as a society and as a species. And from an entrepreneurial perspective, whether you're focused on a very specific category of that or a very wide open area, we're going to see enormous amounts of functional and structural change over the next 20, 30 years. And how that translates into how venture capital will be different, I have no clue. But almost by definition, there's going to be some stuff that's very, very different 30 years from now than it is today. <laughs> Thanks. I, I didn't know where we were going to come or where we are going to go with that. I think we'll take it from there. Something that you write about in the book, and perhaps this won't change, is about raising money the right way or the procedure to properly raising capital. And I want to I quickly quote something in here because I thought this was really great. It's, it's something that I like to speak of is that, is that emotion trumps logic. And when you start to engage a VC and, and a relationship, you need to keep something in mind that you've written here. And it goes... We tell entrepreneurs that we want to fall in love with them in the style of a first date energy. We want to feel the time slip away and regret when one must go on to our next commitment. After the entrepreneur leaves, we want to keep thinking about him or her, wondering when we'll get to meet them again. I find that almost, it's funny, but so true in how if you lead with emotion and you're able to capture that, that audience and that relationship, that can lead to the fundamentals of capital and and starting to raise properly. Can you expand on that? Or do you have any outstanding examples where you've seen companies come to you and you just, they hit the mark and what was really outstanding for them? I've seen plenty and I've seen it work both ways where you have a first meeting and 
really it really falls flat. But your analysis of why it falls flat was completely wrong. So you know, a counterexample of that that I would give you is our investment in a company called Fitbit. And my first meeting with the CEO and founder, James Park, was via telephone call on a day that was a snowstorm in Boulder. And I was just trying my hardest to get off the phone. And I had been introduced to him by two of his seed investors, both people I trusted a lot and a lot of respect for, uh, John Callahan at True Ventures and Jeff Clavier at Uncorp. But I, I just wasn't interested, independent of whatever the interaction was. And our interaction was fine, but it wasn't inspiring. And so I passed on exploring it. And nine months later, James was never able to raise his financing. So nine months later, I got notes from John and Jeff again, both encouraging me to meet with James a second time. And I said, look, you know, I wasn't really inspired by the guy. And both of them responded basically, hey, Brad, this is a you problem, not a James problem. You know, James is incredible. He's a total killer. He doesn't have this exuberant, emotional, extroverted selling energy, but he's just extraordinarily capable. And, you know, this this company is a company that's got your name all over it in terms of the kinds of things that you and Foundry like to invest in. And you just need to really give it its due. And I said, OK, I got it. And, you know, this time I did a video call with James and the social interaction wasn't much different this time around. But the substance of what they accomplished in nine months was incredible. Hmm. And I walked away from that that call feeling like I got to I got to do something here. This is an investment, you know, for us. And, you know, then went on to spend a bunch of other times and, of course, developed a, a friendship. We invested, developed a friendship with James, et cetera. So I think that the incorrect read of that statement would be that it's all extroverted emotional energy and recognize that that's a flavor of getting excited about something. But really what you want is you want to have an emotional connection to the founders and or the company. We, I like to use the word, my partners and I call it affinity. We have to have an affinity for what the founders are doing. And we want to be investors in the founders as much as the founders want us to be investors in their company. And if you can get those two things connected, then it turns into something really interesting. You, you said a couple of things there, which perhaps you can dive into. One, you mentioned that James of, of Fitbit was an absolute killer. And does that imply that when you look at every deal, everyone's got to come into you wanting or aiming to be a billion dollar organization? Or is there a room and appreciation for less grandiose targets and in more refined niches? Well, for sure, there's interest in things that cover a much wider range. I think the the outcome goal of we're going to go build a billion dollar business is way less interesting as a starting point than we're going to create a company that does this for people who really want the thing we're doing. And so building the argument of value of what you're doing is much more interesting than asserting that it's going to be a huge financial outcome. And, you know, I'm yet to meet a VC who invested in something that she wasn't interested in, right? VCs don't say, well, I thought that company was a piece of crap, but I invested in anyway. Every time a VC invests in a company, she thinks it's going to be a huge outcome. And the definition of huge outcome probably varies by fund. And it also varies over time, right? Uh, in 2010, people didn't talk about billion dollar outcomes. 
that wasn't the goal. That wasn't the expected and desired outcome. But you might talk about, we're going to build a company and go public. We're going to build a company that's a market leader. Those are, again, all sort of, I think, just table stakes, aspirational goals. And it's much more sort of next level down. It's not what are you going to build? It's, it's why. Why are people going to care? Clearly, it's important to understand what you're creating. But okay, cool. But why do people care? Interesting. I mean, that why is what leads there. Another point you made there that I thought was, uh, well, it's it was made by a, another venture capitalist I spoke to in a previous interview, and she said, the best companies over-communicate. And in saying that, what she was saying was those who perhaps the financier is not ready to to write a check right now, but if you tactfully continue to communicate, which it sounded like Fitbit did, they were able to help you see what they're accomplishing. And that perhaps was a, a big part of helping seal the deal. Is that fair to say? Or when they came back nine months later, you were very impressed? Absolutely. So Mark Suster up front has a line that he subscribes to, which is he likes to invest in lines, not dots. So he's looking as a VC, and I think many VCs look for the progress that founders are making over time rather than a single moment in time. And you know, the thing that captivated me was, a combination of factors. One was while James and his partner Eric had not been successful raising a financing, they had put in some money themselves and True had put in a little bit more money. And over that nine month period, they had effectively launched the product into the market. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's say that they were somewhere between five and $10 million worth of sales for that time period. So they had, with very limited resources, uh, gotten a product into market and started to have some, while early, steady growth and adoption. The way that James talked about what they were building and what their future roadmap looked like, as well as who their prospective customer was, not just the individual user, but how they were thinking about scaling the business was interesting. And some of the people that were now starting to use Fitbit and getting excited about the early Fitbit products uh, that they've been able to attract just with hustle, not with big marketing campaigns or influencer campaigns or anything like that. And then the feedback from those people was also compelling. And his ability to, in you know, 30, 45-minute window, uh, package that up and present it was well done. And when I was able to calibrate my own frame of reference against his style versus I didn't allow my own biases around, well, you know, he's just kind of presenting the information deliberately to me versus getting me all excited about the product. When I realized it just wasn't his personality, I'm like, all right, that is a me problem. I need to, hmm. I need to not be looking for that. I need to accept and recognize that his style and his personality is going to be what it is. And then when I came at the conversation from that frame of reference, you know, I could see that he was an incredibly focused executor, which was, you know, what a business like that needed. Hmm. Really interesting. You don't hear a lot of stories like that. So uh, thanks for that. Now, when raising money, you know, to maybe even and tap into the Fitbit example again, you said that they went a long way on very little money. And perhaps that was, you know, some of their own capital and friends and family money and so on. And when you start stepping into bringing in institutional money, so that angel and VC money, you go from the checkers board to the chessboard, and, and so to speak. The long-term impacts of the, the term sheets and the cap table and the terms that will dictate the future of that can have huge impacts on the company. What advice do you have for 
perhaps framing that up and properly approaching and looking at how you're going to raise capital? I think being clear about what your plan is and maybe what your goal is, is important. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially when they first start raising institutional money, don't really think through how much money they need, what they're going to do with the money, who their best type of investor is going to be, what the next step along the way of progress that they're going to make with whatever capital they raise uh, is going to be. It's more of a, well, you know, we need to raise money, so we're going to go raise three to $5 million because that's what people do at our stage. So I think step one is to be more rather than less deliberate. Another thing that I think is important in the context of this is to be prepared. I think there's a lot of people who, whether you get inbound from an investor or you end up in a place where you're having conversations with a potential investor, and your first interaction with that potential investor is one where you're not really prepared. You haven't thought through what you're doing. You don't have your pitch down. You don't have your materials put together. And so you end up either wasting that first interaction or making a mediocre to bad impression in that first interaction, which might short circuit off where you go, or having a good sort of very short meeting, but then not being in a position where you're you're able to follow up quickly to take the next steps and keep things moving. An example of this that happened in my world recently is we, we have a portfolio company that had just shipped a product. They raised some money from us and another VC and were doing well. They were a little late on their product, but it was a compelling product and they're getting some good early feedback. And one of the founders met a VC at some event and that founder then referred the VC to the CEO who was the other founder. And it was probably about two weeks before the CEO was ready to go reach out to about 15 or 20 VCs. And, you know, the CEO didn't really have his pitch down, he didn't have his positioning down, you know, et cetera. And, but instead of saying to the person, hey, let's schedule a meeting two weeks from now, I'll come out and see you, let's sit down and go through this, to, I don't know how it happened, but he allowed himself to end up in a 30-minute call with this VC on the phone. And, you know, it was the end of the day, the VC was running from thing to thing, had just gotten back from a trip, was kind of you know, listening, the CEO wasn't really prepared. You know, the end result was that a couple of days later, the VC, when the CEO reached out to say, let's let's get together now for real, the VC said, eh, you know, not really interested, you know, good luck. You know, because your business doesn't do this, I don't think we're a good fit, which by the way, was totally wrong because the business did do the thing that VC was saying, because your business doesn't do this. It was just that the CEO didn't do a good job explaining So those kinds of mistakes happen all the time because entrepreneurs just don't treat it as a process and get prepared. Hmm. You know, I've I've referred to it as financing as a user experience. And how can you reduce that friction of the other side who's going to write the check? Or in this case, it, it was almost thinking through, is taking a meeting at the end of the day, taking this call a good thing to do? Or is the other side prepared for it? And it, like you put it there, the founder here allowed himself to do that. And perhaps he should have seeked more counsel and been more strategic and provided a better user experience to help deliver the message. Great. Well, something which I find interesting now in the world of financing is we're starting to see a lot more new forms of financing coming in. And you wrote about some of them in the new edition of your book. 
And so when you talk about things like crowdfunding and perhaps other forms of capital that can come into a company early stage, how are VCs viewing that? Is it just an annoyance and, and a reason to step away from the deal? Or what do you see? What are the pros and cons of doing that? Well, it depends a lot on the type of thing that you're doing. So if you use crowdfunding as the broad label, there's multiple types of crowdfunding. Right? There's product crowdfunding, which has nothing to do with raising equity. Mm-hmm. It's a very compelling way to find out if your product has any sort of product market fit. It's also a very good way to get early non-dilutive financing to actually build out you know, the first generation of your product. So in general, that's very compelling. And most VCs find that a company that's had a successful crowdfunding campaign sort of is a positive signal. If you do what's called equity crowdfunding, and I'll just focus on the US version of this because I don't know the international versions well enough. There are certain types of equity crowdfunding, most specifically one of the ones under the Jobs Act of 2012 called 506 that is actually a quite dangerous form of financing to do if you expect to later do venture financing. So there's some VCs, dangerous is probably too loaded a word. There's some VCs who are uncomfortable with companies that have done 506 financings. There are some that aren't. But understanding the nuance and the specific risks associated downstream with whatever financing you do, I think, is important. Is there any rules of thumb you could point out or any, perhaps it's not rules of thumb, but any of those nuances which they should just absolutely keep in mind? And one thing I can think of is venture capital firms don't want a lot of people on the cap table. Is there things along that lane that founders and entrepreneurs can keep in mind? Yeah, there's probably a bunch of things, again, depending on what you're doing to pay attention to. I think if you're operating from the frame of reference of, I want to have, or I'm going to raise VC in the future, I think the most important thing in your early financing is to make sure you have a lawyer involved who understands private financings and venture financings understands the dynamics with accredited and unaccredited investors and are able to help you configure a financing that has the appropriate legal exemptions in different states as well as federal exemptions and are, you know, securities are registered or issued appropriately under whatever the laws are. I think there's a lot of cases with situations that uh, probably say uh, sound better than they are. And maybe that's just a high level thing to always realize as an entrepreneur is whatever the right cliche is, right? There's no free lunch or nothing's easy or whatever nonsense cliche you want. If it seems like it's easy to raise money from somebody, somebody's pitching you an approach that they suggest should be very hard, uh, it's probably not going to work or it's probably not a good approach. And, you know, it just comes back to making sure you're informed. And you don't fall into something where you end up wasting a lot of time or doing something that then downstream causes you a lot of problems. Yeah, if it's too good to be true, just put your your spotty senses or dig in deeper. Yeah, I was digging for is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. When a company is lucky enough to move beyond the early stages of financing and they perhaps they receive their Series A and they're looking to do a large multi-million dollar Series B or Series C, how should they be working with their venture capital firms? What's indicative of a good relationship to move up the path and achieve greater and greater financing so they can, can continue to grow? 
It varies a lot by the type of firms you're dealing with. You have a lot of venture firms these days that are stage specific. They're, you know, they're seed or series A firms, and they're series B or series C type firms or early growth, late growth. So understanding what the VC's strategy is. And by the way, there, is, there are plenty of firms that invest across multiple stages. That's piece one. A second would be understanding the VC's engagement model. There are some VC's that the phrase that's still commonly used are, is full stack, right? They try to help you with lots of things around your business and they, te- they then build larger organizations. So they might have people on their team that handle recruiting and marketing and PR, product development, design, whatever. Mm. And then there's other VCs that are very partner specific, have small teams where the partners themselves who have a lot of experience are the ones that are spending most or all of the time working with you. You have some VCs who are involved through a certain stage. A lot of seed and pre-seed VCs will leave the board or start to disengage when you get to a Series A type investment. And then you have a lot of investors who at the later stages don't take board seats. But just understanding what the, the flavor of each is, I think, is critically important. And recognize that as a founder, you will probably have one or two of your venture capital investors who are the ones who have what I like to call ball control. They're the ones who, you know, are the point guard, you know, on the board for, if you like basketball analogies, my sports analogies usually suck. So maybe I don't <laughs> But, you know, the issue is it's not that you have one dominant VC. You might have two. You might even have three that are really collaborative and know how to work together well. But it's usually not every investor. And understanding the relationship and the dynamics between those investors and managing those relationships is important. Understanding how to build and manage your board is important. Looking towards, especially if you're building a very scaled business, looking towards a board governance dynamic that over time becomes independent, is less VC-centric, is important. Things like that. There's a lot. (laughs) plus trying to run the business while running through mud, trying to get things done. So I definitely recommend all the listeners, if you're looking for venture money, to come and and read venture deals. A lot of these subjects you go into great detail on. So well, definitely one of the reasons why I reached out and I appreciate you providing some more color on it. Uh, Just looking at time, Brad, I'd love to wrap up and perhaps just with one more broad question. You write in your blog at feld.com or you wrote recently about version 54 yourself. And having been through the years of, of venture financings and with relation to your, your business experience, do you have any advice for the earlier versions of yourself? Uh, lots of advice. I think the biggest is, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years and I've probably been doing something around entrepreneurship for almost 35 years. Early in my career, I spent very little time really understanding what was important to me and even understanding how to think about what was important to me. And as a result, I spent an enormous amount of energy working, which I was glad I did. It was, you know, to become successful, I think you have to put huge amounts of energy into the work. But along the way, I didn't reflect very much on myself and what was important to me, especially at different stages along the way. And there were some moments in time that I had big dislocations 
one of my 20s. I had one around 9-11 and the internet bubble collapsing. And these were moments in time where when I regrouped, I thought hard and learned a lot about what I cared about, what I wanted to do. But it wasn't continual, which is kind of where we started, right? It was this thing that was very episodic. When something profound mm. happened, I would pay attention. And I think if I had it to do over again, I would have spent more energy continually exploring what was important to me and why I was doing it. The other thing, which I would pat my younger self on the back for this, I've always engaged with mentors. And today I view mentorship as a foundational part of any entrepreneur's experience. It's a big part of what we do at Techstars. My own personal philosophy is around a phrase we call, we use at Techstars called give first, where you're willing to put energy into a relationship without defining up front what you're going to get out of it. It's not altruistic. You do expect to get something. You just don't know when, from whom, or over what time period, or in what consideration you're going to get. And even early in my first company, I had mentors, a number of whom were our clients, our early customers, who were very helpful for me navigating some of the very difficult and new things I was encountering. And I also put a lot of energy into developing peer mentor relationships through organizations like, at the time it was called Young Entrepreneurs Organization, now it's just called Entrepreneurs Organization, which is an international organization of entrepreneurs, but many other types of activities where I didn't allow myself to be isolated. One of my natural modes would be to be more isolated because I'd rather be alone than be with other people. But I, you know, I, I worked to integrate myself as a young entrepreneur into other things that were going on, play leadership roles around it, and also both learn and teach sort of reflectively with my peers and from my peers. So that's another thing. Like I think I did a good job of that, but I just reinforced that how important that was to my own growth and development. Hmm. I appreciate that. And you know, it's I can reflect on myself of at times being a little too reclusive and can see the benefits of actually getting out there. So thanks for sharing that advice. I see as we're, we're wrapping up on the hour, I want to let you go so you can move on to your other things. But the listeners can follow you at feld.com where they could see your blog and read your blog there. Also at Foundry Group, and then they could also check out Techstars. Is there any other places that you would uh, like to draw some interest into or any final words for us? Yeah, probably the, on, the only other thing to focus on would be Twitter, which is bfeld is my handle there. And final words, thanks for doing this. I think the more people talking about these kinds of things, uh, podcasts like this are incredibly helpful. And you know, certainly when I started as an entrepreneur in 1987, I like to say the the business content that existed was either Business Week magazine or reading biographies of people like Lee Iacocca, which were not necessarily helpful for entrepreneurs. So thank you <laughs> yeah. for putting together content like this. Well, hey, I'm very much appreciated. Thank you for being a guest, Brad. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.